You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Good morning, church. Keep your Bibles there in Luke chapter 11. I want to ask you a question, a rhetorical question. I want you to think about this. Take a moment and think about the worst first impression that you've either ever given or received. You know, when you meet someone, think about the worst first impression that you've ever given or received. Maybe it was the first impression with a future spouse. Maybe it was in an interview. Maybe it was just a friend. Let me, let me tell you about one of mine. So I am, uh, I think I'm 19 years old and I walk into a church now, this is B.C. for me, uh, meaning before Christ. So I, I walk into that church um, in a different state of mind, we'll say. And um, I, I am, you know, this is a different life. I, I'm not well-dressed. I've got like baggy sweatpants on, a hoodie, and I think like a beanie cap or something. I have longer hair than my wife currently does now at the time. And I walk in, and the first person I see is my bride, who I did not know at this point. This is the first meeting. And the first thought that goes through my mind is, man, she's going to think I'm hot, right? (laughs) And so... For the rest of the church service, I notice that she's looking at me, and I'm trying to not look at her, but my buddy keeps nudging me. He's like, yo, this girl keeps looking at you, bro. And I'm like, I know. I got this. We're cool. Don't worry about it, right? So church ends. Uh, There's a gym uh, attached to the church. We we go to the gym, and uh, I kind of sit down. They've got pews on the sidelines of the gym kind of thing, and I kind of like sit down like, yo, girl, what's up, kind of thing, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting back. I remember it, that my arm was around her. She remembers it, that she's on a completely different pew. You know, she's wrong, but I'm sitting next to her. I've got one of those, like, old school, like, really cheap cell phones, so it's not a flip phone. It's not the cool Nokia phone at that moment. Uh, it, it's a, like, really cheap my dad gave me this phone, and the only reason this works is because he wants to contact me. If I need a mic, I'll get a different mic, but that's annoying me. Do I need to keep talking? I'll keep talking, and you just tell me when. Okay. So I, I take out this really cheap phone, and I'm like, yo, girl, let me get your number, right? Again, my memory is she puts the phone number in my phone. Her memory is, no, you can ask me in a better way. And uh, either way, I got her number, right? And so I don't know if that was a great first impression or a really bad one that the Lord just had ordained for me to then, you know, somehow marry her so many days later. Uh, But that was my first impression with her. And I, I think she left going... This guy needs some work, but for some reason I find him really attractive. Um, and so that's the first impression that we have. And I think it's important that we all, and we, we know this, right? First impressions matter, right? At a job interview, what are you doing? You're making sure that you are dressed appropriately. On that first date, you make sure you don't have stank breath, right? You, you, you're not ordering things that uh, will give you stank breath. You, you're making sure that everything that you're doing on that first date or that job interview or that first time you meet someone really matter. They're, they're, they're important things. You talk about, you want to make sure you don't talk about something really strange. First impressions really matter. 
That's why uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to have a table setter training next Sunday and the Sunday after that for our folks who serve on a Sunday mornings. We're going to talk about first impressions because you only get one chance for a first impression. And today we are examining a text where the people around Jesus failed to see who he was, even though he made a really great first impression. But because they failed to see who he really was, they doubted him. And so the title of my sermon, if you're taking notes this morning, is The Beauty Beneath Belief. The Beauty Beneath Belief. Jesus shows grace in our doubting. And that is the beauty beneath belief. So let's walk through our passage this morning, beginning in verse 14. It says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Now, let's pause there. I want to I say that this sermon today will, will be a part one and a part two. Next week, we are going to flesh out some of the more um, finer points and the details about some of the demonic stuff that we're going to see here. Uh, it might be a good opportunity for you this upcoming week to go back and listen to our sermon on demons. I think we have two of them in our Luke study uh, because Jesus is teaching us some, some nuances here, but we're not going to unpack those today. We're going to get to a little more of the context and exactly what Jesus does before we get to some of the deeper demonic stuff. So that's just kind of a side note. <clears throat> What's important for us this week is we want to see what Jesus is doing here. And in order to do that, we want to know the context. And so what's leading up to this moment? So last week, Brandon preached on Jesus being approached and being asked about how to pray. How, how do we pray, Jesus? And Jesus then walks the disciples and others through this kind of model prayer. But after that moment, we can see in Matthew and Mark's gospel that Jesus leaves there and he begins to go and preach in the synagogues. He begins to go and train people. He also heals people. And so Luke begins this passage, verse 14, with a word that says, now. Now, in the Greek, this word is both a shifting word, but it is also a word that brings with it the previous moments. So it's not just that, hey, shift, it's all of a sudden a new moment. It is a shift, but bring all of the context that had previously happened with it. So when Luke says, now, what he wants us to know is in the middle of preaching, in the middle of healing people, Jesus is about to perform an exorcism. Now let's lean in a little bit to this exorcism. So the demon had taken away the man's ability to speak. And this is an important note for us because the enemy will always look to harm you. We need to recognize this. 1 Peter 5.8 says that the, Satan is like a lion looking to pounce, looking to devour someone. And when we engage in sin, we are giving into the demonic. Notice, when we engage in sin, we are giving into the demonic. We are giving them a foothold in our life. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He says, be angry and do not sin. So we can be angry and we don't have to sin because we can be angry. And he says, do not sin. Do not, do not let the sun go down on your angry, anger. And then he says what? Give no opportunity to the devil. 1 John 3.8. Whoever makes a practice, this is where engaging comes in. When I say engage sin, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. 
For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Demonic oppression is not happenstance, and it is not random. The enemy has a battle plan. Do you? In so many ways, this is what Luke is drawing our attention to because what Jesus is going to do at the end of this discourse, at the end of this exchange, is he is going to look at the crowds around him and say, make a choice. You are either for me or you are against me. These are not light times. These are heavy moments. Jesus is preaching. He's healing. And now he engages in an exorcism, one that made a man mute, that changed his entire life, took away what God had given him in a voice. And I think it's important that we lean into the heaviness of this moment. This man had been freed from possession of the demon in Jesus' name. The battle had been won. Exactly how Jesus said it would. In Matthew 11, he says, The blind will receive sight, the lame will walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have had good news preached to them. A miracle was performed right in front of everyone's eyes. And what was the people's response? Well, their immediate response was that they were marveled or amazed. This is that first impression. Look at this great work. He casts out demons. But look at the following verses. See how quickly their hearts were hardened. And I I believe if you pay close attention, see how quickly maybe your heart might be hardened as well. Verse 16. But some of them said. So this miracle has happened. A mute man has been delivered from demonic possession and now can speak, praise the Lord. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul. So right here, you have some and others. You have two camps of people. Both have the same issue, but expressed in different ways. Here's their issue. Both of them doubt Jesus. Camp number one. Mark and Matthew's account reveals that these people making the accusations, the the sum, right there at the beginning of verse 16, are likely Pharisees. These Pharisees are the religious elite. These are the people who are religious academics. They're very famous people. They're they're well-known, well-thought-of in the community. They are very powerful. And instead of expressing their doubts and their moments of not understanding or their struggles with Jesus, what they do, they make accusations about him. Now, you've never done that, have you? Think about a moment in life when you've had a doubt, and instead of just receiving the doubt or trying to have a dialogue, you've then made an accusation. Let's think about a relationship. Has there ever been a moment where maybe you've accused a friend or a spouse of dishonesty or betrayal? Instead of openly discussing your feelings, maybe your feelings of insecurity or your feelings of mistrust, what have you done? You've made an accusation toward them. Maybe a work environment. Employees accuse their colleagues or maybe their, their boss of favoritism or incompetence. Instead of addressing concerns about workload or communication or job satisfaction, oh, they're just, 
this. When really you're feeling different things and so you make an accusation towards them rather than having open dialogue communication. Think about politics. We're all probably guilty of this, right? We accuse opposing parties or leaders of corruption or incompetence instead of engaging in constructive dialogue about policy differences or governance issues. Let's think about social issues in our life. God forbid somebody see the world differently than me, and when we begin to discuss these social, social issues with race and gender and class and all sorts of areas, people may resort to accusations or, of discrimination or prejudice instead of having open conversations about system, systemic challenges and biases. What people often do when they experience doubt or they experience emotion internally is they then express those emotions in a very different way. Sometimes they come across as anger. In this case, I believe the Pharisees, can't number one, they doubt Jesus' authority and deity. Can't number one doubts Jesus' authority and deity, but doesn't know how to handle it. So what they do is they make false accusations about Jesus. Their first impression of Jesus was that he was coming to change everything that they knew, and they were likely scared of change. They struggled to believe the things that they had been taught their entire life could possibly be wrong. I think sometimes we look at Pharisees as just complete and total enemies, but I want you to slow down for a moment and think about a Pharisee who would have been raised from birth to believe a certain way. They would have gone to rabbinical school and then now all of a sudden they have this man in front of them performing amazing things which they can see and they can to a degree respect and understand, but yet what is he coming to do to them? He is coming to change everything that they've ever believed and thought. The people that they valued in their life who spoke into them, the mentors, the family members, all of the loved ones who said, hey, this is how we believe, this is who we are. Jesus comes in front of them and says, it's a little different than that. And doubts creep in. And so instead of wrestling in a healthy fashion with doubts, they go, ah, he's from Satan. This can't be real. They didn't know how to handle their doubt. And in some ways, they didn't even realize that Jesus could handle their doubts. That's camp number one. Camp number two, many often believe that if you were just shown a mighty sign from heaven, you'd believe that much more in Jesus. Here, a crowd of witnesses firsthand see a man who could not speak be delivered from demonic possession by Jesus and now can speak and is coherent. And yet, what do they look back at Jesus and say? We want more signs. If you remember back to Jesus' moment in the wilderness when he's being tested by Satan in Luke chapter 4, Satan's third temptation in the wilderness was the demand for a wondrous sign that would compel belief. Let's go there. Luke chapter 4. Beginning in verse 9. Nothing brings me greater joy to hear pages flip. That's amazing. It says, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. This is Satan taking Jesus, put, putting him on the temple, temple, the pinnacle of the temple, excuse me, 
and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Essentially, attempt to kill yourself. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan looks at Jesus and says, hey, if you jump from here, you'll be protected, right? So do it. Prove yourself. Give me a sign and a wonder to prove that you are the Son of God. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Camp number two doubts Jesus' authority and deity and asks for more signs. In this case, the demand for a sign is itself a sign of unbelief. We need, to, we need to really listen to this. We need to hear this. God has made it clear to all of mankind that he is the creator and that he exists. Romans 1.19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. These people's first impression of Jesus was awe-inspiring, but it wasn't enough. When we think we want more signs and wonders, what we are really saying is we will continue to doubt even through the signs and wonders that you have already delivered. Do we slow down and pay attention to the signs and the wonders that he's given us? A moment like this happens earlier in Jesus' ministry. It's recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. These people believed in Jesus because of his signs and wonders, but what Jesus sees is, no, you believe in a magician. You believe in a genie. You do not believe that I am who I say I am. You desire the signs and the wonders, but you do not, do not desire life change. Signs and wonders are not why we follow Jesus. Signs and wonders prove to us in the scripture that Jesus is who he says he is. If you were looking for a sign of wonder, you can certainly find them in the scriptures. If you look intently in the world around you, you will be able to find his signs and wonders and his miracles even today. We do not follow Jesus because of those. Those are proof that he is who he says he is. We follow Jesus because he paid a debt that we could never pay. Amen? Listen, if you've come to Piedmont because it feels hip or you like our music or you like the preaching, it's okay. We like it too. I, I love being able to be a real person on the stage and off the stage and, and preach God's word. I love being able to sing the songs that, man, they really sound good. And I love to listen to Hunter wail on a guitar sometimes and still sing foundational theology. I love that my kids enjoy church and it's one of the highlights of their week. But if you've, and if you've come to Piedmont looking for those things, you have found those things. But these sorts of things are just today's signs and wonders and are really just preferential icing. 
Because my hope is that if you've come here, those things maybe help you understand us, maybe you help you get you into the church culture, maybe just make you a sense of ease, but my hope is that you have found Jesus. Because all of this can go away and we would still have a foundation of Jesus. It is not about the coolness of our church or our building or our parking lot or how smoothly the check-in system went for you as parents this morning. They matter, okay? But what matters most is Jesus. And so we want to be a church built on that foundation, not one that will change with the culture of the world and with the styles of the world because he is the only one that can handle your messiness and your brokenness and my messiness and my brokenness. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 17, the first part. So he's performed the exorcism and these two camps have gone, well, man, maybe he's doing this from Satan and the other camp's going, man, let's just see some more. And it says, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them. Now, we're going to cover some of these things in detail next week, but here's what I want you to see, and I don't want you to miss this. In the middle of these two groups of people, in the middle of their doubts and their deflections and their accusations, Jesus meets them with grace and with truth. He meets them with grace and with truth. He calmly, logically, and firmly answers their doubts and then simply tells them, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I, I don't know how much you've read through the Gospels and seen Jesus interact with Pharisees, but as I'm reading this passage, my expectation from Jesus, which is sometimes wrong, is that Jesus is gonna fire back at these jokers like, you of little faith, look at you slackers, just get out of my face, I am so tired of you. I mean, think about what he said to his own disciples just a couple of chapters earlier. He's been walking with them for years and he's been showing them who he is and they're struggling with belief and he literally goes, how much longer I gotta be with these jokers? How much longer do I have to continue to disciple them? And then these Pharisees, who really want to ruin his day, they've already got plans to murder him, and he looks at them in response to accusations about him being from the devil with just a very clear, hey guys, you know, logically, you know I can't actually be from the devil because that would be like a house divided, and a house divided never prospers. So that doesn't really make sense. So you're either for me, or you're against me. You know what I see from Jesus in that moment is that the beauty beneath belief is that Jesus can handle our doubts. Just like he handles the doubts of these Pharisees and these signs seekers. He can handle your doubts. So we need to ask ourselves a question. Where do we doubt? And how do we handle it? Maybe as a missional community, ask the question, 
Where are we leaving space to talk as a family about our doubts and our struggles? And are we modeling the same grace that Jesus has modeled to us? See, I think there's times and, and moments in our life as Christians, and I think we believe the church teaches that if you doubt, then that's wrong. And, and I don't want to endorse doubting, but I do want to say that doubting is a part of the human experience. And so when you have doubts, Jesus is big enough for you to take them to him. Because we see this right here in this moment. I need you to hear that doubt by itself is not sin. It is what you do with the doubt that can lead to sin. Remember back to our passage where Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and he says, do not be angry. Or he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun, the, the sun go down on your anger. And he says, give no opportunity to the devil. What if he said, in your doubt, do not sin. Give no opportunity to the devil. Doubt by itself is not sin. Is God going to show up in this moment? God, I really need you. Can you help this? God, I'm struggling to believe today that you are for me. God, I'm struggling to believe that you're for this relationship. God, I'm struggling to believe that you will provide enough. I don't know that I can tithe. I don't know that I can do these things. I don't know that I can serve because, God, I'm struggling to believe. And what he says is come to me with those doubts. And I will logically, calmly, and firmly tell you who I am. Remember that the very first expression of doubt in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 3. Satan looks to tempt Eve. God had given a clear command regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and had specified the consequence of disobedience. Satan introduced doubt into Eve's mind when he asked, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden. See, he, he wanted her to, to lack confidence, to doubt God's command. And when she affirmed God's command, including the consequences, back to him in Genesis 3, Satan replies with a denial, which is str a stronger statement of doubt. He says, you will not surely die. Doubt is a tool of Satan to make us lack confidence in God's word and consider his judgment unlikely. But the beauty beneath belief is that we can go to Jesus with our doubts and ask for help. Go back to Mark 9, the, the father of a boy with an unclean spirit comes to Jesus and he cries out and say, I believe, help my unbelief. James 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. But he says this, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for the, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
hold on, Chris, didn't you say that we, Jesus can handle our doubts? And then he says right here, don't doubt. It looks like that. But what Jesus is saying is in your doubts, he knows your heart. And so you can come to him. And if what you're doing is, hey, uh, give me a car and I'll believe you, then yeah, he ain't answering that. But if what you're doing is you're going to him earnestly in a posture of humility saying, God, I am struggling to believe. I am struggling to see who you are. Help me see who you are. That's an earnest prayer. And he will answer that. He will give you the desires of your heart in those moments. But if you're looking for a burning bush at every turn, if you're looking for the Red Sea to part at every turn to prove he is who he says he is, he says, I will not entrust myself to you. Because you don't actually believe. You just want a genie. So the question that Jesus asks to these Pharisees and to these sign seekers is the same question that he asks to me and you today. Will you draw near to Jesus? Will you ask the Spirit to reveal himself to you? Because you are either for him or you are against him. And I believe he gives an unequivocal, finite, excuse me, infinite answer of I will always receive you when you come to the Father. So in your doubts, in your struggles, in your pain this morning, when you, when you don't know if God is for you, will you come to him? Will you come to him? Will you be a missional community that allows others to come with their doubts and their struggles and be a place where that you can talk about them with hope that Jesus will wrap his arms around you in the middle of doubts in the middle of loss, in the middle of pain, in the middle of struggle. Jesus wants to be right there with you. But you gotta come to him rather than suppressing your doubt and making accusations or seeking signs or doing anything else. Come to Jesus. As the band comes up, we're gonna move to a time of communion this morning. I want us to use this time, Rusty, you can come get that, thanks sir, as a way for us to remember Jesus, as a way for us to focus on who God is. And so in just a moment, I'm going to call you to come up from one of these three baskets up here and grab this cup. It's filled with bread and with juice. The bread is representative of Jesus' body broken for you. As we take it and we eat it, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross for each and every one of us. The sacrifice is this, in case you're not aware, that we were created good. God creates all things and says, man, it is good. But then we sinned. And because of that sin, our relationship with God was broken. Our righteousness, our holiness was severed. And we became dead in our 
sin. Our spiritual nature is no longer alive. And so God set up this sacrificial system where we would take lambs and slaughter them and and the blood of the lamb would cover our sins and then he gave the ultimate Passover lamb in Jesus who would come, put on flesh, live a perfect life, meaning no sin, and then become that lamb and die on a cross for you. And as we eat, we remember that sacrifice. The other side is the juice. It represents the new covenant. It means that that old covenant of sacrificial lambs and all of that, he has paid for it. He has become the sacrificial lamb. And so we no longer have to make sacrifices. We no longer have to avoid bacon. Praise God. We can now enjoy the things of this world in honor and in glory of God. And when we drink it, we remember and we agree in this new covenant. And so communion is a time and a place for God's children. And so if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I just ask that you not take communion with us this morning. If you'd like to put your faith in Jesus this morning, I would love to walk you through that. It's a simple thing. It's repenting and believing. Repenting means turning from sin, recognizing that you are dead in your trespasses and you need a Savior. And then you believe in the Savior, Jesus, to pay for your sins. So I'd like to ask you to come forward this morning. We'll take it together in just a minute, but you can come forward with your spouse, come forward with a friend, and then we'll pray and we'll take it together. This is your time.